Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm Sarah. And I'm William. And today, it's just the two of us. No special guest, which is fine. But today we're going to talk about gender bias in the medical field. So we will be talking a little bit about how that presents itself, both for patients and for medical staff. Um, I'm not going to provide any specific trigger warnings, but just take care of yourself as you need to and pause the episode and come back when you're ready, if that is what feels best for you. William, do you want to start us off with our icebreaker question? Sure. Uh, so like you said, it's been a long time since we did an episode, just the two of us. We've talked about ourselves a lot on this podcast, but you know, there are always more things to learn. So we're going to do some favorites, some back and forth, round robin, round robin favorites. First question. What is your favorite form of potato? I feel like that's a hard question for me to answer because... French fries are my favorite, but mashed potatoes are incredible. Have you ever had a mashed potato pizza? No. Okay. Well, you should try it. Anyways, I don't think... Is the mashed potato the sauce? Is it on top like cheese? What's the situation? So you have crust topped with mashed potatoes. Okay. Topped with cheese and chives and bacon. It's incredible. Huh. I mean, I would try it. You should try it. It does seem weird, though. Not going to lie. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite form of potatoes? I mean, mashed potatoes are certainly my favorite. Um, like, by far. Then probably... Probably a waffle fry, specifically. Interesting. And then, like, other forms of potatoes before other forms of fries. Really? Yeah. Huh. I mean, I like, love a French fry, but... What about Whataburger fries? Those are really the best. Are they? What is your favorite French fry? Like fast food French fry? Yeah. I mean, the situation varies, right? Because you have like Arby's that has a curly fry, which is delicious. You have Wendy's when you get their fries with with a Frosty. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, And then Chick-fil-A has the waffle option. Yeah, that's fair. All right. No answer for that question needed. But I do have another favorite question for you. Tell me. What is your favorite brewery? In Austin, my favorite brewery is Blue Owl, which is they only do sours and they're delicious. It's also like a cool vibe at at the place. In... Atlanta, my favorite, it's actually outside of Atlanta technically, but uh, is Three Taverns. Delicious. What about you, Sarah? I've never been to Blue Owl. I might have to go. Is it only sours? It's only sours. They have like sour stouts like that are a little, that are different um, than like a regular sour, but it's, they're all sours. Mm, never mind. Okay. For me, my favorite Austin brewery is Austin Beer Works. Fun fact, all of their beers are gluten reduced, which I don't understand why they don't advertise because I like specifically reached out to them and asked if my favorite beer was gluten reduced. And they said, oh, yeah, of course, because all of them are. And I was like, why would you not put that out there? 
Anyways, so excited. Great brewery in Portland. And really overall, my favorite brewery slash distillery is Rogue. They have incredible beers and their whiskey is amazing. But I'm going to throw in a third because there is a brewery that I actually have a favorite owner with. And that is the Family Business Brewery, which is owned by Jensen Eccles from Supernatural. Mm. I've never been there yet, though. I haven't been either, but I do. I have heard about it and have wanted to go. Let's do it. We should. I... Interesting. I am just thinking about some different ones that I've been to now. And there's one, it's not a brewery, it's a cidery, but it's called Supreme Core, like core, like an apple core, but also like a play on like Supreme Court. That's clever. Yeah. And I've only been there once, but I liked all their ciders. And I think I've told you about this before, but so generally, here's another fun fact about William. Generally, I hate when people ruin things with coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker. I don't say that to be like, oh, I'm above it all. But like, I don't like it. Okay, with the face. And and I don't like when people put coffee in things like ice cream. Like, why ruin ice cream with coffee? Why ruin brownies with coffee? Like, there's no need to be, put coffee in things. So when I went to Supreme Court, they had a coffee cider. It was like a coffee hard apple cider situation, right? And I was like, oh, it's going to be one of those things that people ruin. But we got a flight. I was with a couple of friends. We got a flight and it was on there. And I tried it and I actually really liked it. And I was really mad about it. Uh, Is this one located? It's in D.C. Oh, bummer. Okay. Because I really do want to try that one day. You and I are very different on the coffee aspect. So it'd be interesting if I actually didn't like it. My friends who like coffee didn't like it as much as I liked it. So, Mm. um, but I was really mad. Uh, Interesting. Just on principle. But anyway, Sarah, do you have a favorite musical? Oh, we're doing multiples. Yes, I do. I have, I'm very passionate about this one and everyone makes fun of my answer, but I'm sticking with it. And that is Moulin Rouge. That's a good one. I, it's definitely not a favorite of mine, but it's good. I don't know why I asked this question because it's hard for me to answer. I feel like my favorite musical that I've seen in person is probably actually uh, it's called come from away. And it's, it's because I didn't know, I didn't know any of the music, like other musicals that I've seen, like I usually listen to the playlist beforehand and I know it, but I didn't do that with this one. And it was really good. It's about Mm -hmm. nine 11. Uh, It's not a musical about nine 11 to be clear, but it's, uh, it's about a plane or, or several planes that were diverted to the small town in Canada and how like it's based on a true, a true, the true events of that. So. So the planes that were diverted on 9-11. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And they were okay. like not stranded, but this one town, Gander, Newfoundland took in like... <laughs> 80 something planes so and then the like the townspeople rallied to make sure they were all taken care of and like it was that's a great story interesting i have not heard of that cool okay so my last question since you've been watching the full Grey's anatomy over the last however long which is surprisingly quick to be honest with you who is your favorite (laughs) 
Grey's Anatomy character. I actually just finished season 16. So I'm caught up to like the live situation, by the way, as an update. Uh, favorite character. Although she had me disappointed in this last season a couple of times, I do think that Bailey is my favorite character. Mm. Uh consistently i think i have problems with other people up and down but i think she's consistently my favorite as far as the new characters our new-ish characters uh uh schmidt is my levi schmidt uh he is probably my favorite like new-ish character he's pretty great i do like bailey i feel like she's a good consistent for the show yeah yeah who are your favorites Mm. Now that I think about it, I'm like, why do I even watch the show? I don't think I have any favorites. Uh, <laughs> Karev was my absolute favorite. Ugh, I was so mad about that. That ending was garbage. Spoiler alert. It's garbage. Yeah, it was not. Didn't like that at all. I was real mad about it. I think my second favorite would be Joe. I love them. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's got her ups and downs too, but. Yeah. She's great. Mm. Mm. I do like her. <laughs> I considered, briefly considered, like, reaching out to her um, to try to be on the podcast, the actress, um, because that? of her whole situation in the show. Maybe. Like, do it. I would be see. so... I just said she was my favorite. You can tell her we talked about her, and now we have to have her on the show. Yeah. I might panic. Uh, Maybe even a little bit more than Crime Junkie. I don't know. I mean, that would be great. I would need some time to freak out with you. I was just maybe surprised. You'd be like, we're going to come on and talk about this. And then no, there she is. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> that would be a really interesting show. That would be hilarious. But anyway, ta- table turn on this one. Least favorite character? It's really a toss up. Between? Do you want uh, me to share first? No, it's between Owen. Yeah. Oh, actually, this might be a three-way tie. Okay, here it is. Owen. Teddy and Derek. Interesting. Okay. Teddy was a curveball. I was a little surprised. I, Owen, I think is my least favorite um, character. And I, and I want to like him so badly, but I just don't. Uh, you know what? Might be a four-way day. Throw in Amelia, too. I don't know why. I oh, them. we just hate everyone. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly all of those characters have their problems, right? But I think Owen is my least favorite. Derek is certainly towards the bottom because he's also a lot. And as far as like, those are the older characters, right? The newer characters, I really don't like Karasik. Like, I don't, like, I get his role in the show, but I also don't like dudes like that that are just yeah i agree overly confident even if it's based in their trauma like whatever like five by time <laughs> yeah um anyway i would still to be clear in case you do invite joe on the show <laughs> it's still one of my top favorite shows i don't know just apparently have problems with the characters <laughs> i mean i think that's real life like how many people do you actually really like um, small number it's yeah <laughs> we won't name names um <laughs> but so talking about Grey's anatomy right there are several instances in that show of gender bias when it comes to seeking treatment uh bailey because she's my fave um there's a whole episode where she 
says that she's having a heart attack and she goes to a different hospital because she doesn't want to deal with her own staff and doesn't like want to appear weak in front of them, which is a whole nother thing about like women in leadership, right? Can't like not, not being able to feel or be perceived as weaker, right? Or like stumbling or anything. So she goes to another hospital and tells the doctor that she's having a heart attack and they're like, no, you're not having a heart attack. Everything is fine. Everything is normal. You're not. And she's like, no, like, have you checked this? Have you checked this? Something doesn't feel right. I'm pretty sure I'm having a heart attack. And they're like, no, everything's fine. So then she calls her staff over to that hospital. And while they're kind of arguing over stuff, she has like her heart attack gets worse um, and it develops into other heart things that I'm, you know, not a cardiologist hashtag. And it's like, she only survived because she was there actively in the hospital. She had called this other doctor to come and like, who was there to help. So she like had to self advocate. And I mean, that's a, a big thing that women experience and a big part of this conversation, as far as gender discrimination and gender bias in medicine goes. Well, I do want to be clear too, that when we talk about this, it can, be from the patient's perspective. So like in that instance, like Bailey's advocating for herself because it's not presenting the same way that we see heart attacks, right? And it can happen in the other ways of like, she can't show any weakness because people look at her differently because she's a woman doctor. And so like it can happen for people working in the medical field as well as patients. And I know several women who have worked their way up in the medical field. And every time they enter the room, people are like, oh, is this a nurse? And she's like, no, I'm your doctor. And so I think it is important to do that clarifying aspect that it can happen both ways. But a lot, I think a lot of the where our conversation is going to go is primarily towards the patient. Yeah, yeah. And I think that a lot of the reason that patients experience those things is medical bias and medical education. And a lot of that is rooted in bias and research. That's what I was going to say is there's a lot of bias in research because everything's based off of primarily white male bodies. Yeah. So that which is seen as like the the standard that you compare everything to. And so and and for so long, women weren't particularly women of childbearing years because you know you don't want to mess with the childbearing ability of a woman um weren't allowed to participate in research um and it wasn't until like the early 90s or mid 90s when the nih congress directed the nih uh the national institute of health and uh the fda food drug administration to start including women in their research and so I mean, I feel like I'm one of those people that's like the 90s were 10 years ago, but I mean, we're at like approaching 30 years ago. And that's still in the grand scheme, a relatively short amount of time for women to just really start being included in research. And it's created this gap, this gap in knowledge, this gap in services um, and this gap in education, medical education. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, even even studying like counseling things, that's still very much true. So, you know, most of like the theories that we use in counseling or the things that we use for diagnoses are all still primarily based on white men and discount a lot of people's experiences. And I think, you know, I bring that up because it is literally every aspect affecting our health, whether it's mental health or physical health, that people 
are compared to white men. And if they don't fit in that box, then they are like the outliers, right? And they are not to be believed or whatever that looks like. And that's crazy to me. Yeah. And you bring up a good point that like medical gender bias and medical or healthcare settings, there's definitely that intersection of racial bias too, because of the way that we teach, the way that we research with both white and men and particularly white men as the standard that everything is compared to. And so that's important too, to recognize that like women of color in particular experience an intersectional oppression from the healthcare system that is supposed to be there to help. And in this country, our medical history has used black and brown bodies, um, but particularly black and brown women as research subjects. The gynecology was, you know, a lot of the the techniques and, and surgical procedures are based on, uh, I don't remember his name, but the, like the father of gynecology um, who experimented on slaves, on, on women who were enslaved, operated on without anesthesia, without consent, and that's how we've gotten a lot of our things on, on the um, experimentation essentially on black and brown women in particular. So, um, and then of course you have, I mean, we could have a whole nother episode on medical racism um, when it comes to like Tuskegee and a lot of other uh, things that were implemented by the, by the government, not only just by like doctors, but by the government, which created mistrust. Anyway, sorry. Side note, side trail. (laughs) Well, <laughs> so many, so many rabbit holes to go down. But I, I do also like when you were talking about experimentation on black and brown women. Like as a white woman, I've only obviously experienced my own experience. And it's interesting to me. And I, th- I mean, I think this happens for women of all types, but like there's that preservation of your reproductive system to like an extreme. And so when black and brown women are experiencing this experimentation and like, there's not a lot of care there, no care. (laughs) And then a lot of white women are experiencing, like a lot of people can't get hysterectomies because unless they have like their husband to sign off on it, because maybe one day they might want babies or their husband will want babies. And so it's just, it's crazy to me to see the differences, I think is what I'm saying. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think I mean, like as a man, if I wanted a vasectomy, I could just like roll up and get one and there would be minimal questions around my motivations or anything. But for a woman uh, and pretty much anywhere across the country for a woman to get a hysterectomy or to get tubal ligation, there is like a whole series of criteria and questions. And like you said, in some places there's the need to get spousal consent. But I think, I think in a lot of places they ask you like, do you have children already? Do you have both a boy and a girl so that you I don't know, don't make this decision. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I want a different gendered child. And it's just crazy. It's just crazy. The pressure that we like, the importance that we put on women being reproductive machines, for lack of a better word, but then also like restrict all of their like freedom and everything because 
we don't think that sex should be talked about or that that birth control should be freely accessed. It's really all about women being at the at the power of men. So but. which can I but I saw this really funny TikTok. <laughs> Tell me more. And it was about the COVID vaccine. So fair warning. But this guy goes, you know, there's some rumors that the COVID vaccine will cause you to be infertile. And he was like, we know that's not true because then women couldn't get the vaccine without their spouse's consent. And I just busted out laughing and then got a little sad because that's true. But it was just so funny to me. And like, that's how big of a thing it is. Like, I don't know where sending that sentence, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's real though. And I think that it's, it's one of those things that's like, sometimes you have to laugh about it so that you don't cry about it. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not funny. Like it's funny because it's true, but it's also not funny because it's true. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> so just had, had a little like stare off into space moment about that. But I, that's what happens, you know, when we have these conversations and it's and it reminds me of like what you and I talked about before about how we and a lot of advocates can talk about something so serious, bust out a joke and laugh and then go back to serious because like it's a coping skill right it's a coping mechanism and how we it's how we deal with a lot of things but i i do want to know that like we do take this seriously even if we do joke around and make for sure laughs whatever yeah one of the one of the reasons i really wanted to have this conversation like this will be slightly self-disclosure but like i do have a chronic illness that is heavily overlooked, barely any research, no cure, minimal help. And I'm part of like some Facebook groups. And this one girl posted in one of these groups and she said, well, okay, so a little backstory. This illness causes pretty intense pain and it's different for everybody. But she said that like she had to go from doctor to doctor to find help because on average it takes roughly 10 years to get a diagnosis for endometriosis. And she would go from doctor to doctor complaining about pain. A lot of people get like noted that they are drug seeking because that's the only help that is for this is like pain management. So people get noted that they're drug seeking and get refused pills after a while. But this girl in particular had a note in her file that she was like attention seeking and that the pain wasn't real. And it was a very short thing. She didn't post a lot of information, but she said that because of that note, when she did reach out for help through her doctor on her abusive relationship, they dismissed it and she didn't know where else to go. And it's such a, like going back to what I said before about how this happens with counseling and psychology and like physical health, women often get overlooked for what they're saying or what they're feeling or what they're experiencing and can experience like medical gaslighting as well but they're just left to themselves in so many different aspects and it can affect every single aspect of their life yeah it makes me think of you know historically you had the diagnosis of hysteria and we 
have like we use the word hysterical to I mean mean funny a lot of the times now, but definitely had a different meaning where pretty much any any sickness that a woman had or any like burst of emotion was blamed on her like roaming uterus essentially that that she was just out of control because she was i mean hysterical right was the word and then it became that became like a a euphemism or substitute for her being on her period and and how often is that used as an excuse to to shoo away symptoms uh of other things and but it was it was a full-on diagnosis that anytime a woman spoke up about anything or there was there was any question or unknown thing was like oh it must be because she has a uterus and so that that's what's the problem here right and that i mean that is used to bar people from bar women from leadership politically or otherwise right women can't be leaders because they have periods um which we're going to talk about in another episode coming up soon but I think that it is often it's just used as an excuse to cover up what what might take more work on the doctor's part, right? Or on the, the medical team's part to address a multitude of symptoms or to, to, and to, to label someone attention seeking. Certainly there are psychological diagnoses that have that as a symptom or a sign, but that just seems so cruel to label someone attention seeking because they have a pain that you can't diagnose, right? Like I was reading an article on NPR from a couple of years ago about this and like gender bias in the medical field. And I wrote down a quote and I can link it in the description, but they were talking about how like not believing women is so ingrained in our culture that it makes more sense to label someone attention seeking. And we see that in victim blaming too. We see that in like every aspect. And it it's just, it's almost overwhelming to think about. And again, not just women, like most minorities, I think we do this too. And then if we talk about younger people, there's like just, there's so many complexities, especially if like you're a young woman of color. Yeah. Or, and like not even to mention uh, trans and gender non-binary people yeah, and, and the experiences that they have, right? Which are so complex when it comes to finding a care provider that understands everything that's going on. But yeah, I think that, you know, we I think we've made a lot of progress, not as much as needs to be made, but a lot of progress with the like believe women believe survivors in the context of assault and and relationship violence um, certainly we need we need continued advocacy there but i think that it's harder for people to transfer that to medical conditions that don't aren't easily diagnosable or that are diagnosable but not so well understood or even with like pregnancy because it's something that men don't experience you, you know you see all these videos of um husbands and wives often you doing the pregnancy simulator and how painful it is and how like surprised men are that it's like out of six out of ten and they're like buckled over and it's not it's not even like the worst pain that there is and so it's it's something that men just can't wrap their hands around heads around and it's hard to transfer that, like believe survivors that this thing happened to them, to believe patients that they are experiencing 
this pain. And I think it's because, I mean, certainly the professionalism of the advocacy world is a problem and another conversation, but doctors are the experts, right? Like doctors are the ones who are doctors. They went to medical school. They went to, and there's no questioning of medical education or medical training that says you might be a biased person. You might not have all the information or you might have been taught biased information when it comes to the fact that like like there are still medical textbooks that you can find that teach that black people have a higher pain tolerance and so they don't need as much as many painkillers and which why would you not believe someone when they say they're in pain and there are doctors that will be like no you're fine because black people have a higher pain tolerance it's based in eugenics it's like that that again whole nother problem um but it's similar that like the information that we are teaching can be wrong and can be biased and people don't want to believe in that systemic shortcoming or failure because then we have to change the system and you know we don't like systems change it's a general well it's hard like that system change is hard i mean it is overwhelming it's overwhelming to think about but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it Right. And even just like with the last 20 ish minutes that we've been talking, like we've, there's so many, so many issues with like ableism and racism and sexism and all sorts of discrimination. And again, like when you have all of these different identities, things get even more complicated as a patient. And if we truly want to take care of people and help people, we have to change the way we're dealing with patients. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up ableism. And I think that it's so connected. I mean, health health broadly is so connected to relationship violence. A lot of people don't draw that line other than like the like broken arms and the bruises, right? Like those types of things. And, and maybe somebody can take it to the next step that says, oh, there might be like depression that's connected, those more mental health things. But you think about things like substance abuse and its connection to, and the health effects of substance abuse and, and how that's connected to intimate partner violence. And you think about postpartum depression and low birth weight and like you you start getting into these like very specific health problems and finding out that there's a connection a direct connection to intimate partner violence and and that abuses impact on a survivor's health because a lot of people a lot of advocates feel they don't feel like healthcare is in their purview that like again we should leave that up to the doctors who are the experts but it's our job as advocates as prevention workers to say your job is connected to my job in this way, right? Like this is the survivors that I'm advocating for need you to understand the health impacts of the violence that they're experiencing. And we as advocates need to become more, become more comfortable with asking health related questions because that's another, that's another way that we further bias uh, is that when people are coming into our services and shelters or in non-residential programs 
us not asking them healthcare questions is not helping the healthcare community draw these connections, right? And so then the connection to violence goes unnoticed and it's less of a holistic experience um, when it comes to healthcare. Well, the interesting thing is that like, you know, I don't remember which episode it was. I went, I meant to go look, but I forgot. But like we, you and I specifically talk about chronic illnesses that survivors can have. And so like, so we know that there is that correlation that survivors can have these illnesses and diseases and everything. And we know that trauma affects the body. I'm specifically thinking about about the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It was an incredible book. I loved it. But like we have these two connections, yet there's still this gap, right? That we don't have these conversations. And when you were talking about like as advocates, we need to be more comfortable. It's absolutely true. Even as counselors, we're trained like, no, you're not the medical professional. You're not the doctor. But you can ask questions like, have you gotten your thyroid checked in a while? Because you seem more tired than usual, you know, and like checking into these different things. And as a woman who has had to advocate, had to advocate for herself in the medical field, it's exhausting. And so as advocates who are working with survivors to make sure they're taken care of, I think it also is should be part of our duty to make sure that they know how to do that and that they have someone there supporting them through that part as well. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's not, we're not asking advocates to start diagnosing people or like administering medication or even like, please, yeah, right. Please don't. don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm not, I'm not saying that they should roll up to the hospital with their client and like start flipping chairs in the lobby demanding attention right that's not that's not it either but just helping uh taking those education opportunities to bring in healthcare providers to be like this is how this these two issues are connected talking to to clients about how to self-advocate right and how that their health conditions might be connected to the violence that they've experienced or talking to people about how their health conditions might put them at greater risk for intimate partner violence. So we talk about chronic health conditions. Uh, we talk about disability. Those things can put you at a greater risk of being uh, taken advantage of by an abuser because of the ableism that exists in our society. Often people with disabilities the abuse that they're experiencing goes unnoticed. And so it is important for us to keep different forms of, to keep the understanding that different forms of oppression are connected in mind and, and understand that we need to take every education opportunity that we have to, to bring in different sectors, multidisciplinary groups so that we can start to address oppression as a whole, gender-based violence being a form of oppression that is directly connected to gender bias and in the workplace. I saw, I put something on my Instagram. This is, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but, and it was, it was calling out the thought that we're taught that quote unquote, she slept her way to the top, right? And we're talking about how we often shame, particularly women for having sex with their superiors to gain 
a promotion or different responsibilities. And the caption was like, why do we frame it that way? Why don't we frame it in the way that says men who hold power abuse their power by rewarding sexual favors as opposed to actual qualifications. And my mind was blown. I I felt that way too when I read it. Yeah. And I had a friend who messaged me um, who, who does not do this work. And he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And I was like, I know. And I was like, and I do this work. And it's just an example of like, just because we do this work, A, doesn't mean we're perfect. And B, doesn't uh, mean that we can't learn new framing and new perspectives because it, that's absolutely true. And, and it's not just, I mean, that, that goes across any industry. You have that accusation that like, oh, I bet she just slept her way to the top or whatever because she's pretty and she's successful or whatever. And you think about women in leadership and even in the healthcare field, right? Like when women are doctors, people often question how they became a doctor, that they had to like sleep their way through med school or, you know, whatever. And it's like, first of all, the direct assumption that that is how someone achieved their success needs to go. Second of all, if that is how they did that, then they, why are we blaming them and not the person who had all the power in the situation? Well, and even in that situation, like if it's a doctor, it's like, the man like let this happen which is super negligent if that person is not qualified <laughs> like right. maybe that's a whole nother rant but like we're still blaming her and yeah it's crazy it's the same way we talk about sex workers right it's like people often get up in arms about the sex worker but not about the person yeah soliciting the sex work but but yeah my mind was just blown and i was like oh well, i'm never gonna think about that the same and so well, which I is think good it, it's growth you brought up a good point in that like even though we do this work and have been for a while there is always things we can know or like learn and there's always things we can be doing better and i you know even like kind of wrapping it back around to gender bias or ableism in the workplace like that is something that also has to be examined like how are the systems of our workplaces still showing sexism and ableism and racism and all of those things need to be looked at yeah and not just those systems but also when complaints are made how does the justice system handle it how does uh, human resources respond to complaints about gender discrimination and often that is not good and reading those cases will make you furious because those systems are power structures that protect power. And often they fall short of actually holding up fairness or justice or just safety for that matter. You know, and we talk about, we've been talking about gender discrimination and, you know, we, we, there's, there's been all of these cases of coaches and healthcare providers uh, that work with athletes that have abused them or coerced them. And and we don't talk enough about situations like that where doctors take advantage of their patients or um, use their status to 
inflict trauma and they're they're in a helping profession so they're a trusted professional so it's harder for their victims to report often because they're a respected individual in their community and and so it just makes it more difficult for for victims or survivors to come forth because they don't think they're going to be believed yeah, I it was it reminded me of another post posted by someone in one of these groups. They were looking for a specific surgeon, and they're like, "I'm so nervous to go because I have experienced these things." And I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't really realize that was a thing until like a couple of weeks ago. Like I think I knew it was a thing, but not like really. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. Larry Nassar, sure, people like that. But like doctors and stuff that that felt new to me. And I was like, huh. But I mean, it definitely happens for sure. Yeah. It also reminds me of like something we didn't cover. There was an article about, I don't remember where or when this was to be clear. So I can't link it. But it was, you could just probably look it up. But like women undergoing surgery the surgeons would bring in like interns or like new medical staff mm. to practice. I don't know, what is the right term for a pap smear? Pelvic exams. Yeah. But, I mean, a pap smear is, is Yeah. Smaller. So they would like, while these women were unconscious and they did not consent to it, they would have interns come and do this or not enter. I don't know, whatever the term is, but yeah. which is insane. Yeah. And there's some bills actually in the Texas legislature this session about trying to address that, that in order for someone to practice there, they have to be like named pre anesthesia, unless it's like an emergent procedure, right? That's like you roll into the emergency room and you're unconscious. Even then. (laughs) No. Well, sorry. My family, but even then it's hard because it's like, there's a lot of papers to sign. They can sneak that in there without telling you. And like, you know what I mean? Like my my point with yeah. this is systems have to change and things have to change. And the way we do things have to change because like, yes, we can make new laws or whatever. But if those practices and those teachings are not changed and like even the, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but like the belief of why it's so important over a woman's body like if that doesn't change, then things continue to happen. Yeah, yeah, and I think other systems feed into that, right? Um, so you think about the idea that women have to sacrifice their careers for motherhood, right? So both in this country, uh, our maternity leave is terrible. A dumpster um, fire. It is a dumpster fire and we don't really have paternity leave. And so that's another instance of gender bias, right? And and the idea that um, women can advance in medical school or um, nursing school or in leadership because they've got to stop their careers to have a family or they're going to have to miss out in order to have a baby and then be with that baby. And if there's not um, nursing rooms or, you know, all all of the things that go with lactation, both a private space and uh, a refrigerator and all of those things, you see why some of those gaps persist because we, we still revolve so much around child rearing 
and we put pressure on women to be quote unquote good moms. And so they've, they've got to take their fraternity leave. They've got to breastfeed and they've got to do all of these things that often hinder them from advancement or, or continuous education or career building. Which we should totally do an episode on pressures on moms. So if you're a listener and you're a mom and want to talk about it, let us let us know. Because I think it is important to talk about all those because it's all the same, but it's a totally separate thing too. Like so many things we could talk about there. But it did when you were talking about that. And I know we have to like wrap up soon, but another big thing with like gender bias and medical stuff, insurance. Oh, insurance gosh. is a bigger dumpster fire and insane for women. <laughs> Even like, it's just crazy that organizations who are primarily filled with women have to pay more for insurance because they're more likely to use insurance, especially like when it's younger child rearing aged women because they might have babies and they might have to take care of things, which also can lead into like a ableism conversation as well. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if people really understand that, that insurance, because women use healthcare more, right? Like that is the underlying statement of fact that it costs more to insure them because they use their insurance benefits more often, which is like the whole purpose of insurance being there, right? Is to do these things. But then they're like, oh, but because you use it more, we're going to charge more for you. Yeah. And then that's just, just base level women go to the doctor more, um, not to mention around pregnancy, menopause, Right. And circling back to to how hard it can be to get a diagnosis. Right. Like you have to talk to so many doctors using the insurance more. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's an infuriating circle. And just as a side note, um, men, it's not, I mean, I guess it is that women, women go to the doctor more often, but men go less, however you want to frame it. Right. And a lot of the reason that men go to the doctor less often is rooted in harmful masculinity because they don't ask for help. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So anyway, back around, we were talking about something. We were talking about... Oh, insurance. Insurance. We were talking about women going to the doctor more often. And it taking longer to get a diagnosis. Oh, right. So I was also thinking about women how often you have to answer the question, like, are you pregnant? Every time. (laughs) Can I tell you a story? I had to go get a test done and not kidding, forgot to check the box that I wasn't pregnant because it was like a scan. They asked me about four times, are you sure you're not pregnant though? And I was like, it was just a mistake. There's like 2,500 boxes to fill out. And then they were like, but are you sure? And I was about to get the test done. They're like, but I need you to tell me if you're pregnant. And I was like, calm down. I literally can't right now. (laughs) Yeah. And some of it, some of it I understand because it's like a liability because if something, if you are pregnant and you have certain things done, like things can happen to your baby. But literally every other appointment, you have to say if you're pregnant and when your last period was. Right. And and I know women who have sex with women who are like, nope, like for sure, 100 percent not pregnant. And they still get badgered with that question constantly. And it's mm-hmm. like, are you sure? Are you? And they're like, 100 percent. Like, 
No. Yeah. Way. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. And I feel like that question comes early in life for for girls and that like even like in your you're like t- like once you've started to have your period i feel like when things start going wrong at the doctor they're like but are you sexually active and are you pregnant which let's be um, honest most people lie about for a long time when they're young sure <laughs> but it goes into that and and i mean yeah people do lie to their doctors about how often they have sex because we have created a culture where sex is taboo and that's a whole nother rabbit hole and different episode and they don't want to experience the shame and like particularly young people um young women don't want to have their parents involved in that conversation they don't you know want their parents to be like oh my little girl is like defiled or like deflowered or but yes yeah also uh, like thinking about sorry to cut you off but like thinking know. about pregnancy and birth and gender bias in the medical field like we did a whole episode on young parents like young moms it's rough and they get treated not all the time to be clear but there is some awful stories and just the cost the cost of uh, health care for women in particular and how prohibitive it can be to people getting care or like furthering their debt or I mean you think of like the cost of tampons and like pads and like uh, it's just and the, I mean just even the cost of like a razor it's like more because it's pink and Ooh, the pink tax yeah so and we're going to talk more about that in another episode coming up soon. But like, which I probably should share this then. But once I found out about the pink tax, I started buying more men's things. Yeah, for sure. It's the same I mean, thing. It's yeah, and so, but all of that plays into like a bias towards women, uh, and that you have to pay more for necessary products, and yeah. <laughs> I saw this other TikTok. <laughs> it's really like my chill out time is TikTok apparently. Same. But this guy was complaining about his like date not paying for their meal. And then sh- this girl like, I don't know what it's called when you like go it's like a reply or something, or like, something that. like that. I'm like retweet. I don't know. We are That's old. We are old. <laughs> and she was like, okay, well, we need to pay more for healthcare and for all of these things like feminine products and like all this stuff and get more taxed on like my, like clothes and stuff. She's like, then we can split the bill. But it was just so funny because she brought up a good point and like we have to pay so much more on so many things. Like, I understand it must be nice to get your dinner paid for once in a while, get that. But still, like she brought up a good point. Well, First of all, I think it's called stitching in TikTok Stitch. when they when they do then they do that reply situation. I think that's what it's called. Not sure. Anyway, um, but I also think that like that guy who was like he was complaining about splitting the bill. Is that what was happening? Yes. So I also feel like a guy who does that just that we're the fully acknowledging that this is all assumption based but a guy who does that who's like she wanted to split the bill and i'm mad about it is probably also more likely to be expecting some sort of physical affection and is probably also more likely to be like pissy if her legs aren't shaved or her armpits aren't shaved and her makeup's not done and her hair's not done and like right so 
how about you keep your opinions to yourself, sir? I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinions, free speech, all the things, but... But it does remind me of an Instagram. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Just anyway. all the social media. <laughs> it's a pandemic. This is what we do. You know, and I will say, like, hopping in between, like, work meetings and counseling sessions all in one room. Like, I don't have a lot of time to, like, get up and do things, so... I just like zone out on social media. Anyway, that's just what you need. It is. Yeah. Sometimes it's the opposite. Anyways, there was this like a picture and it was this guy in his underwear with hair all over his body. And then this woman who's like perfect. And he's like, um, could you shave your armpits? Oh, I did see that. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, that's what it reminds yeah. me of. William. We just kind of went all over the place. With this we episode. went everywhere today. Uh, which I'm okay with because yeah. usually we have like very succinct, professionally fun interviews. But today we just got to rant a little. Yeah. And it's such, I mean, there's just so many different things related to sexism and gender bias. And um, and so, yeah, we just kind of threw everything to the wall and just kind of went for it. To finish off this episode... I know. So I feel sorry. I just had a thought while you were saying that. And I was like, you know, we also didn't, we talked about sex, but we also didn't talk about sex, um, like sex education. Uh, um, the purity one we're going to plan tomorrow. Uh, oh, perfect. And we um, talk about um, the discrepancies and like pleasing women too. Oh, the orgasm gap. Mm, mm-hmm. Great. Because that's exactly what I was about to talk about yep. just now. Great. Not in the medical one. We'll do that in purity culture. And how sex is not for women. It's for men. Yes. I love it. Okay, okay. Cool. So to close this out, per the usual, I do want to like end on a positive note because I think we ranted a lot about a lot of things. <laughs> so hopes and dreams around gender bias in the medical field. Go. Uh, oh, so many things. Okay. I I hope my hopes and dreams are that we can kind of start at the source and reform medical education and health education. So so health education in primary schools, right? Starting starting then, uh, but all the way up through like public health education, like my master's degree program and counseling education, like your master's degree program and medical education, nursing education, all of these things, uh, because that's those things that we learn then often set the tone and the framing for how we approach our clients, patients, participants, you know, the, the folks that we're working with. And so I think that we really need to start addressing these oppressions that are ingrained in us by our society in these educational tools um, and educational eras of our lives. And so that would be one. Um, Two, I hope that we start to really address the research gap and not only having women participate more often and gender, other gender minorities, gender non-binary and trans folks, but also often they they participate, but then the analysis isn't done to show the link to gender for whatever the study is for. And so I think that uh, I hope we start to close that research gap faster. 
because I think it's slowly happening, but I think I want it to happen faster, which means more dedicated funding and more dedicated attention to to the issue. I think to go with that, like there's a lot of things that affect people that are not understood because they don't mostly affect men. And, you know, and I, I guess this is a little personal for me, but like, I hope that that gets more attention and those things get more studied, more understood. And that people aren't left for years on end with no diagnosis, no cure, no help. And they're just not turned away from so many doctors. Because I think like to your point, like that gap is closing, but it still affects so many people. I guess I'm just hoping for the gap to close faster, but. Yeah, I was reading a HuffPost article a while back about medical sexism, the research gap, right? And the thing that you just said that reminded me of this, you said how like men are in power and making a lot of the decisions and because the decisions aren't about them, then they are skewed, right? Um, But there was a congresswoman, um, sorry, I just looked her up, Pat Schrader, Pat Schrader, who said, you fund what you fear. Mm. And so things that, because men are in power, a lot of the funding goes to the things that men fear, cancer that they can get, right? And issues, heart attacks, Thing, you know, things that are strokes, things that are and, and all of those things, you think about them and how they are, how they present differently in men and women and how the standard, the standard thing that's taught is how they present in men. And so, um, and because that's a lot of the way the funding has skewed, um, but you fund what you fear. That was her quote. And I was like, that is a great reflection and a great reason that we need more women in positions of political power. I just had like so many bunny trails in my head. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. Cause I really, I really like that. And I can't bring up what I'm thinking cause it's going to send us into another episode and we have to finish, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I just really like that. It, it, you, it makes you think about a lot of things that we're not doing yeah. or yeah. stopping because it doesn't affect the people in power. Yeah. Whew. Okay. On that note, <laughs> I just got really sad. And Sorry. No, it's okay. I'm gonna finish. Uh, be... I'm gonna finish this with my last hope. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's that. People who do experience all of this discrimination, especially in the medical field and in their medical care, don't feel so alone, because it's mm. also something we don't talk about in our culture. Is if you're experiencing pain or chronic illness, we don't want to talk about it. And that isolation is so intense. And I hope that people don't experience that in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Something else to be hopeful for is our upcoming episodes. Um, So we're so excited. We're trying to put together an episode on purity culture, on tech abuse, on menstrual equity. No order. No, in no particular order. Those are are some of our upcoming episodes. And again, if you have a topic that you want us to cover before we wrap up for the year, send us an email and we can talk about it. Yeah. So be excited. Tune in for more. Thanks for jumping down this rabbit hole with us. We will see you guys next week.
Bye. Bye.